right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Got another live episode for you today. Solly here. Sorry, I always forget to introduce ourselves. Recorded this this past weekend at Pinehurst with Jim Wagner. Jim's a longtime associate of Gil Hance with the uh, Hance Design Company. And uh, Jim is an entertainer. He was a blast to play with. We really appreciated him coming down. A lot of laughs in this one. He was a he owned the room and entertained everyone and roasted me pretty good. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, he, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but he wanted us to mention as well the Caveman Scholarship. We talk a bit about the Caveman Design comp- or the Caveman Group that is kind of their uh, their group of shapers and whatnot, and their scholarship that exists to uh, provide financial support to deserving individuals to expand educational goals. Um, if you're if you're interested in golf course design or working in golf in some capacity, I suggest you check out the outpostfoundation.org as well as if you're interested in making a donation there. Uh, it's it's really cool what the Hans Design Group is doing with uh, with this Caveman Scholarship, and uh, we had we had a ton of fun. Great weekend, about twenty uh, I think it was twenty one maybe twenty uh, people from our message board and from Twitter uh, came out to Pinehurst to play number two, play number four, play the cradle. We did a wild world of golf filming. Uh, and we recorded this live podcast, and it was a very busy weekend, and uh, I'm still a little hungover as I am reading this here on a uh, a Sunday evening, which is usually never a good sign, but usually the sign of a very good weekend. Uh, last thing here before we get rolling here, you've seen how often Callaway is winning again and again all over the world. They added yet another one, a big one today with Danny Willett at the BMW PGA Championship, the European Tour's flagship event. He drove it on a string and made every putt he looked at with his Odyssey Stroke Lab Tuttle putter. This week alone, Callaway was number one driver at the BMW PGA Championship, the number one driver in Japan, number one driver on the Champions Tour. You've heard this story week in and week out. There's a reason why everyone is using this club. A lot of people at Pinehurst had epic flashes in the bag this past weekend, which was great to see. All this success with their epic flash driver and the incredible ball speed created by Flashface. That's why it's the number one selling driver model and number one driver across the major worldwide tours by far in 2019. If you haven't tried it at this point, I don't know why. I don't know why you're wasting your time. You really need to try it. CallawayGolf.com today to experience epic flash. And without any further delay, here is our live podcast with Jim Wagner from Hans Golf Design. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second ever live No Laying Up podcast here at the Pinehurst Brewery. The first one was a great success. We got a slightly smaller audience this time around, but it is a louder audience, I believe. Can we verify that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are here at Pinehurst with Jim Wagner, who is no stranger to the Pinehurst family. Uh, we're going to get to the fun stuff really quickly, but first, can we get a little introduction? Tell us what you do, who you work with, and uh, some of the things you've worked on. Jeez. Uh, well, uh, I work with Gil Hans. Gil and I have been working together for 23 years. So I think Hans Golf Design has been in business for 25. So shortly thereafter, I joined Gil. And I've worked on pretty much everything that we've done, he's done since. Uh, so, I mean, that's a long list of projects, which we can go through at any point in time. That's what, yeah. But Ra- I, wrap this up so we can list, yeah, talk yeah, about every right? single and one. I'll take us to the end. You know, <laughs> cut. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're a small company. We're a small company. How small? 
well, you know, it started. It was, it was Gil, myself, and Rodney. Rodney Hine left and went on to be the superintendent at Boston Golf Club, which is, you know, you guys have played there. It's great. Uh, and then it was just Gil and I for the longest time. Uh, we have an office manager who works with us part-time. And over the past uh, maybe four or five years, we've had Kevin Murphy uh, joined us, who uh, basically does all of our plan work now. Uh, and then Ben Hillard uh, joined us probably right after the Brazil Olympics. So it's been three years now. Uh, and he runs our projects, does you know some planning with us, and so there's really four of us that you know Jeez. do all the work. Uh, we also all the have, work. So all the work. Like all, once you get to the, the golf work. course, all the work. Yeah, but we also have a side company. It's called Caveman Construction. That's where all of our shapers. Is there, is there a story behind that name? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can get to that. Yeah. So uh, Caveman Construction. That's just a. Uh, we just set it up separately for business purposes, but that's really where all our shapers work for. Okay. So all of our shapers work for Caveman Construction. How many shapers yeah. are we talking? Well, at times we, we go up to thirteen. Some of those guys are uh, subs uh, that are you know looking to do their own thing, like Kyle Franz, for instance. I mean, everybody knows Kyle. Mm -hmm. Kyle's great, extremely talented. Kyle worked for us for about five or six years. Uh, those guys tend to do the sub thing because they need the flexibility and freedom to be able to run off and chase their own projects and do stuff like that. So it, it all depends, you know, on the individual and what they want to do. Because we never want to hold anybody back. Right. right. This business is hard enough, so any freedom they can have is great. What is your role specifically? So what, what are you in charge it's, of? Well, yeah. we're, we're so loosely organized, so there's no real... For like, better or for worse? For better or for worse, exactly. You know, uh, if working every day is your thing, because every day I will work. Right? There's, there's no doubt about it. I'm sure every day Gil's working. You know? That's just the nature of the business, right? especially when you're doing projects from Thailand you know, to France. Uh, it almost never stops, so it's, it's like that. But from a corporate structure, which everybody's probably a little more familiar with, I'd probably say I'm more along the lines of the COO, so it's like basically operations. Uh, but I still handle you know, and help with you know, a lot of design work. I'm still shaping regularly. Uh, like last year, Marion, you know, I along with Ben Hill, I pretty much shaped, you know, majority of the bunkers at Marion. So there's still a lot of that going on. We never want to be to the situation where we're not hands-on. We just feel that being hands-on is the only way to And Gil's to the same way. And Gil's the yeah, same way. Yeah. I mean, Gil, Gil moves to the jobs. Like Gil, when he was here doing four, he lived in Donald, the Donna Ross house, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was great. But we have to be there. There's no other way to do it. And our guys are as well. Everybody that works for us moves and lives at the jobs for ever how long it is, six months, eight months, a year. It just doesn't matter. But that's it. So what if I go to like the, the Hands Design website and I go and look at the renovations and I look at the restorations? The restoration list is about double in size. What, how do you, what's the difference between the two? And is, it, is that term used a little bit loosely? You want the truth? Yes. It's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, right? You know, everybody in this room understands that, right? Renovation, restoration, it's loosely used on, on either side, right? I mean, there can be some stuff, you know, restoration, but a restoration can also be a renovation. I'll just look at Marion, for instance, right? Because we just finished Marion. But we tried to restore Marion to the best we could. So in essence, it is a restoration, right? We went back to what was there, you know, from all the old photographs, things that changed over the years, bunker style change, greens change, everything changes, right? So it was a restoration, but it also had a huge component of a renovation, right? We renovated all the greens. 
The greens are no longer what they were. They're no longer, you know, push-up greens. We turned them into USGA. Sure, we did use, you know, uh, scan technology to put them back, you know, almost, you know, replicate what they were prior. So you can say, yeah, there is a restoration portion to that, but we renovated all the greens, right? We renovated all the bunkers. We put them back, but we renovated them. So it's, I, I, it's kind of a, you know, a BS term. Uh, that's kind of used freely, but a renovation can be a restoration at the exact same time. Hmm. Now, if you don't do any of going back and you're saying, listen, you know, another architect changed something that was built in 1920 and they, they kind of put their own, you know, stamp on it and you went in and, and you just modified what was there and you didn't go back, that could be considered a renovation. Mm -hmm. But, I, I mean, it's, it is. It's, it's all kind of... But it's almost like bullshit. people are afraid of the renovation word and they feel like they're really doing something... You know, some, uh, restoring it kind of is a there's, a, there's an air to it, I guess there you is, could say. It's, yeah. I mean, there's probably a lot of marketing people. I play with a marketing guy today <laughs> over there with Rob. But, yeah, I mean, it, there's a marketing aspect to yeah. it, right? Of course. Sure. There has to be. You're restoring something. That's great. That sounds great. But in essence, yeah, you may be restoring, but you're, you're renovating. But where, sure. where in, like, a restoration, where do you take liberties? Because the game is extremely different than if you're, if you're, reno you're, you're restoring a 1923 golf course. The game has just has changed a ton since then. So if you want to put a bunker back in the same place, it might be completely irrelevant with today's technology. So what, what, what kind of liberties do you take when you are, you know, you, you know what the goal is to attempt to kind of restore the bones of a golf course, but where do you see the most changes? Well, the first thing that happens, right, when, when you do a so-called uh, restoration or renovation, the tees are going back. So if you take the tees back, right, then the game's changing from that point forward. The game has changed so much that, you know, so you're taking liberties of moving the tees back. You're taking liberties of maybe taking the same bunker style, same bunker configuration. We'll say it was three bunkers in 1923 from a tee that was a little further up. You move the tee back. You may move that bunker complex, you know, 50 yards downrange, but you're going to put that same three, you know, configuration back in. So you take liberties in that uh, location of that. And, and the greens complexes, right? You know, you have to take a little bit of liberties, especially in like old Ross stuff. You hear it all the time. The defense of XYZ hole on this course that Ross built was that you didn't want to be above the pin, right? And if you're yeah. above the pin, that's a defense of the hole. That's a defense that as an architect, you try to put in, right? We have to do as much as we possibly can to defend the golf course uh, without really tricking it up. So you go ahead and, you know, you make the green pitch severe from back to front, which Ross did, but that's when green speeds were five or seven or something. So if you want to still keep that, you can't possibly even hold a ball on the green. So you may have to go ahead and just drop the back of that green. So instead of it running, you know, 5%, you know, forward, you may have to drop it to three and a half. The thing is, as you get into, and when you have tournaments, then we're opening up another whole can of worms, right? With the PGA Tour, right? You know, we got Robin Quivers back there behind us running the, uh, the soundboard. It's DJ Pye for those yeah, that are not yeah, in the room. So, uh, he knows, because, you know, he's worked for the tour, and, and nothing bad about those guys or whatever. <laughs> For, for a couple of weeks, but uh, <laughs> there's nothing, uh, you know, wrong with that. But, you know, we're okay with, green, with greens and, and, and pinnable locations up to three, three and a quarter, three and a half percent. You know, some guys aren't. Some guys say the max you can be is two and a half, two and a quarter. You know, that's, that to us just takes away the, the defense and, you know, some of the interest of the greens. So I guess it would be greens and bunkering and yeah. tees. I mean, fairway wits, you know. Well, speaking of, you know, tournament golf and the tour, one of the – it's an interesting topic. I bring this up whenever I can because what you guys did with the 12th hole at TPC Boston and putting mm -hmm. the centerline bunker in 
and watching the tour pros freak out and hit balls into other fairways and then demanding the tour coming in and, and removing that. Mm -hmm. Walk me through this whole process, right? Because the way I understand it is you, you have to figure out ways to combat how far they hit the golf ball. And you got to make them think about where they want to hit it. And then you do that and then they cry and then it goes well, away. You just said the key word, think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is the key word which a lot of professional golfers, no offense, they don't really want to have to think their way around the golf course. I've said this before, and when we redid the rail for Trump, I don't want to say the golfer's name because you could probably find it on another podcast. Come on. Billy Horschel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, seriously, seriously, seriously. And he, uh, it, it was at a, uh, maybe like a polo thing at, at the, in the pro shop the evening before the event, and they had, played, they had played a couple practice rounds, right? Now, mind you, we're going into a, a world golf championship, right? Zero cut, yeah. right? <laughs> Limited field. Everybody's guaranteed, what, 75 grand or whatever Free the number money. is. Yeah. Free money, okay. What do you think of the golf course? Well, you know, Jim, I, this, you know, I get up to that seventh hole, and, you know, and the problem we have is that, like every, every hole we, we have to think. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no let up holes. There's no holes that we can just get up there and, and, and hit the ball. And I'm kind of looking at it, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, seriously? You know, I said, you know, most people come Thursday, right? And their normal job of a week are worn out. That's why Thursday is the biggest party night of the week, right? Yeah. You know, because everybody's beat up after four days of work. And here you're complaining, you know, because after four days, you're gonna work for four days and make 75 grand. That's what most people make. That's the average income of most people for an entire year. So you know, like comments like that, but I mean, you have to understand who you're playing with, who you're working for and with is that, and we all know this, is that it can't, and nothing can be their fault. And you know, there's a lot of prof no seriously, yeah. right? There's a yeah. lot of prof there's a lot of professions out there that once you start to bring doubt into your own mind, that you're no longer going to be successful, right? As soon as you start doubting and worrying about whatever, th we we go through this, right? If we're working on a golf hole or working on a golf course or shaping a bunker, and I'm worried about what. Gil's going to think or what he would do in that situation or if I'm worried about what the members are going to think or if I'm worried about, you know, the tour players or something like that, I'm never going to do what I think is right, okay? So if you start doubting yourself, you're going to change and now you're not, you're not going to do what should be done, okay? And that's the same thing with the tour player, right? At least in my mind, again, I, you know, I can barely play. You know, I, I got a, a, a two today on a par three and I got a stroke. You know, which is great. You is know? that a net too that you got it, that coin it, for? Yeah, I did. Or, yeah, I got that deuce too? coin. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wherever that deuce coin is, yeah. There was a long slippery like deuce that I that I dropped. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know, you're the only one Sully, that got a deuce, right? Yeah. Uh, anybody else have a deuce today? Yeah. His was a, his was an upper decker though, because oh, he made it from out <laughs> he made it from out in the middle of the fairway, right? So we'll call that an upper decker deuce. <laughs> I bladed it if we're being for, honest. For people that don't know what that is, for the, the three or four that uh, aren't here in this room that actually listen to the podcast, uh, <laughs> I think you can find an upper decker in the Urban Dictionary. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, so that, that, that's what really goes into play with a tour player, at least I think, is because they, they can't be wrong about what's going on, right? And because if that enters into their mind, then th that becomes internally a problem for them. So it's easy for them to yell at their caddy. It's easy for them to blame the golf hole. It's easy for them to blame the superintendent. You know, the same person I mentioned about Doral was the same person that was on TV at Chambers Bay, you know, making all the, the wiggles <laughs> with her arm because of missing The snake moves, yeah. Yeah, so it's just, it's all part of it. And, and you know, yet we have to take it with a grain of salt. 
Well, that's why I think I think Gil even referenced it when uh, during that that first year after the renovation at, at Doral uh, or restoration, I don't know what you call it, but. JB Holmes hit a ball in the center of the green and it ended up rolling off into the water. But he was coming, I forget what hole it was, but he was coming in and Gil's point was like, Yeah, you came from the wrong side of the fairway. It was the first hole at Doral. Yeah. And it's a par five. It's like 550 yards. And he's hitting this big, big old high like fade into a green that sloped from left to right with water on the right. And he wonders why his ball hits the green and goes into the water. Well, I can tell you why. You know, it's not really that hard to figure out. But the thing that most people don't understand is like, the PGA Tour, you know, the setup that's done every day is done, up, uh, done by a separate group of individuals that are not, I don't think we think they work for the PGA Tour. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but they have control of setting up the golf course. And when you explain to them what you're trying to do, you know, and I'm sitting with the guys when this is, you know, some of these shots are going on and they're kind of laughing, right? Because we've given them plenty of room on that particular hole. They can hit the ball out to the right and then have a much better angle into the green because the green slope like that, so they can play into it. So the fact that they're attempting that and hitting the ball into the water, quite frankly, is their own fault. Right? They didn't read the golf hole and try to understand what was going on. So, you know, when you look at it and, you know, Trump's there, he's kind of laughing because it's, you know, one, it's a show, and obviously we know he's a showman, but two, it's just, you know, these guys are not thinking the way around the golf course. So. What's it like working with Trump? I thought it was great. Now, my, <laughs> uh, seriously, now my was before he became president. He was running for, getting ready to run for president. But it's, you, you have to get comfortable with them. A lot of people don't. And it becomes about, you know, more of what their decision making or answering his questions is more about what they think he wants as opposed to what you should say. At least my experience with him was, it was, you know, you just tell him what you thought or what you wanted to do. And you know he would listen to it, and you know usually accept you know what you were going to do. Uh, a lot of it's money based. You know he's he's in business for it. But you know every time he came out, once I got comfortable with him, it, it was great. I mean we talked. I mean I had his cell phone number. He called me three times a week, and and just talk about all sorts of stuff. So I had zero issues with him. You know. Did uh, and you, you talked about this some when we were talking about how you were shaping the bunkers and thinking about what players are going to think, what members are going to think. And you, you were kind of saying you have to trust yourself in it. So, like, what, what is what is your design philosophy? And I think it, it's become almost a cliche for people to say, well, we want to make it accessible for the mid-handicappers, challenging for the low-handicappers, and fun all around. But what that, that is, it seems to be the movement in golf. I don't know if I took the words right out of your mouth. <laughs> well, if you're shaping a bunker, it's not fun for anybody, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's overall philosophies, right? Like, bunker-wise, I go back to because I grew up in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Okay. And I was just talking to one of the guys here that was, was you know, uh, just moved to Philadelphia, and he lives near Marion. You know, he drives by Marion, and you know, it, it's great, right? When I was a kid, that that was the big thing. You know, where I grew up, you know, I, I wasn't going to be a member at Marion, you know, uh, but I love golf. A lot of friends caddied at Marion, so I would just drive by the East Course just to go ahead and uh, and, and see everything that was on the East Course. Now, I became a fence member of the West course because it was all, you know, caddies and my buddy's caddies, so we go play there. And there was a heck of a lot more architecture on Marion West than there, than there is on the East, really, because of what's in the ground. It's a shorter golf course. There's much more interest there. But, you know, my whole thing is is that, you know, Marion to me is, is one of the greatest golf courses, but Marion has everything. So no matter what goes on and what you want to do design-wise, it's at Marion. If it's not at Marion, it sure as hell is at Pine Valley, right? So wh- when you start asking your questions, you know, when people are like, well, I, I don't know. I don't think routing should cross over. Well, look at Marion. 13, you walk over the entry road, you walk in front of 1T, and you get to 14. 
you know, well, I, 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 I don't want two par fives. There's no par fives on the back. Marion's last par five is number four, right? So, well, all those, all, all those, all those short holes, well, I don't want to hit a hybrid off every hole. Well, Marion, you know, those six or seven holes in the middle of the golf course, I mean, what's the longest par four? You know, 350 yards or something, you know? So uh, everything with Marion is great. So if you think about that and the way it goes, and that's usually the philosophy I always go off of. No, it's, it's pretty simple, really. When did when did it become? I don't know what happened with golf course design, but it came very much like there were certain rules, quote unquote rules, that people felt like they had to follow, being seven thousand yards, par seventy two, two par fives, two par threes on both sides. What, do you feel like you're still fighting that? If you go in to talk to you know a greens committee somewhere, do you feel like you're still fighting people on on the concept of these quote unquote rules that I'm not really sure where they came from? Well, yeah. I do agree with that. I mean, it's the same marketers that are trying to sell restoration versus renovations, right? And especially in club situations. It's, so it's all bullshit. It kind of is. You know, really, it is. You know, think about it, it's all bullshit. And again, I just used two examples of what were really, you know, good yeah. golf courses that you could go all over the place. You played Boston Golf Club, 18 is a par three. Uh, but, like, we're, we're, we're trying to not convince a club, but we're trying to work with a club in Florida that have plenty of, they've got three, we'll call them championship 18 holes, you know, of golf. We're trying to take one of their, their 18 holes, which is the shorter of the bunch, and we're, we're talking about turning it into a shorter, more interesting, you know, let's just say it could be par 68, you know, 5,500 yards, you know, maybe from the back tees it gets up to 6,000 or a little bit more. You know, a par three course is part of that and expand their practice facility is part of it. And, you know, there's, there, there's members there that kind of question that thought process. And it's like, well, why are you questioning it? That's, that's what, well, some of us in the room grew up playing as kids, right? We weren't playing 6,000 or 7,000, you know, 7,200-yard golf courses. We were playing, you know, Marion back before they expanded for the Open. And still to this day, it's probably from the real back tees, it's probably 6,600 yards. I mean, you got the scorecard there. You're trying to show everybody how cool you are <laughs> that you played Marion. Like, seriously, you guys got to understand, this thing was wobbly here, right? So he pulls out a wad of scorecards, and he's got a Marion scorecard. Like You asked what the slope and, was. And I a, had it right and, here. And a Pine Valley scorecard. He's like carrying no, the, the shit around to show people. Oh, like accidentally. Like, oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> That fell out of my pocket. Oh, you you played Marion? Oh, yeah. How about It's that? a conversation piece. Yeah. Put it in the Gosh. middle of the room. Well, I, anyway, what was the question? I don't remember. But <laughs> I've always thought, like, 18 holes never feels like enough to me. And 36 usually feels like too many. Yep. But if you have somewhere here, like we're at Pinehurst, you know, if you play 18 holes, I would love to hit a bunch of more approach shots. And that leads us to the Cradle, which yep. opened here a couple years ago, which you guys built. And I was really interested to say... <laughs> Big Cradle fans in here. Um, well, we got to thank the Pinehurst folks for that, Tom Pashley and Bob Farron and all those guys, Bob Deadman. I mean, because they're the ones that, you know, either visualized doing something there or allowed it to happen. And we were just the fortunate ones that said, hey, take these, you know, two holes and let's turn them into something cool. Yeah. Because so. it feels like, like today we played two and I, I was in the shit all day. And I felt like I missed out on hitting a bunch of really interesting approach shots. It's like, oh, we can walk over here to the cradle and hit a bunch of really interesting approach. It just eliminates the driving part. And I think a lot of people feel like they have to hit a bunch of drivers when they go play golf. But this sets up so well. And I was interested here. Gil, when we asked him, when he was on the pod, he said, I asked, what, what, what are you most proud of of everything you've done? And he said the cradle. So what, why was that? I don't know if you, would, if you would say the same thing, but why was that such a rewarding experience for you guys? Well, the, the rewarding part of that is 
drive down the road that parallels the cradle on any given day, right? And it's usually filled with people. You know, it's, you know, a group of guys like, like we have here in this room. It's, you know, a husband and wife. It's a, a grandfather and his grandkids. You know, it's about going out and playing golf. The thing that I think gets lost in golf is it's no different than like a pickup game of basketball, right? Where you grab a couple of buddies and, hey, let's go play some basketball. You know, you see little kids at the playground shooting hoops and stuff like that. That's what golf needs to be. It's intimidating, first of all, right? You know, a lot of us suck. You know? <laughs> Majority of people suck. <laughs> it, seriously, right? He's pandering now. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and it's an intimidating game. But if you can go out there and not be intimidated and have fun and play and enjoy, you know, so I, I think that's the biggest thing about, you know, the cradle is it's just that. You know, you can go out there and have fun. It's 45 minutes. But then again, if, if you're a better player, and like you just said, so if you want to go out and, and you wanted to practice some shots, you can go out to the cradle and use it as a practice mechanism. And that's kind of what we're doing with this course in Florida and we want it to be. It's the same thing. It's like you can go play 18. It may not take you, you know, four and a half hours. That's, you know, a little bit long for a lot of people, especially in this day and age. If you can finish in three, three and a half hours, still hit your driver. You may not hit it on every hole, but still hit your driver and, and enjoy your, you know, around the golf course and then go ahead and maybe – to what we're doing here. Go grab lunch, have a couple beers, go out and play a par three course. You know, that's what it should be all about. Yeah. There's plenty of options to go. And depending upon how many scorecards you have there, you probably got them all <laughs> listed. But there's, pl there's plenty of courses to go where you can do that whenever you want to do. But we don't have enough options of the cradle or, you know, a classic older style golf course yeah. that's kind of fun and interesting. And like everybody loves number 10 at Riviera. Right. So when is too many number 10s at Riviera too much for an 18 hole golf course? Right. Is it six of them or eight of them or nine of them? You know, add a couple you know, really cool par threes. Everybody loves a short par three. You know, how many short par threes is too many? Is a wedge and nine iron and eight iron par three? Is that is that too many short par threes? Maybe give one long one, but it can easily be done. And I think it's something that needs to be done. And, and that's the interest, you know, and let people go out there and play and have fun. It's, it's everything really seems to be trending that way from Bandon, you know, Sand Valley here. I'm, I'm the, I can't even name all the places that are now popping up. We were just at, at Bally Bunyan in Ireland this spring and they had this, the, the Cashin course, the second 18 hole course, which is even harder than the old course. And we, we were playing it. We we're like, this place would be so perfect for just cool green sites and just a par three course. Just make a part. Don't have to make like a lot of people don't want to play 36 holes in a day. And I think it's it's in everyone. Now it's like putting courses, too, with the thistle do and things like that popping up. But uh, I want to talk about number four. Um, Interestingly enough, I think it's listed at both as an original design and a renovation project. Oh my God, they got everything right. They were right down the list. It's probably a renovation too, right? So what what was here at Pinehurst at number four, and what was the what was like the process like of, of building this golf course? At, at some point, I don't know really the whole history of it, but I think it was maybe the late '80s. You know, I think Fazio or his group came in and, and redid uh, number four, uh, and, and it was done in that style. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. It was just the style that it, w it was done in. And I, I think that the brain trust behind Pinehurst realized that they, they had maybe a lot of that in all the courses that they had. And, and course two was something, you know, interesting and different. And they wanted to expand off of that. And I, the kind of funny thing is I travel a lot, right? And, and I, I live at these resorts. I lived at the Real. I lived at... Uh, stream song, you know, I, I go to all these places. So I talk to a lot of people, you know, I, I eat dinner in a bar almost every night. 
And uh, you talk to groups of guys that come in, and I doubt once during, say, a three-year span that I was traveling around in these different places, anybody ever mentioned Pinehurst. Like, nobody would come in and say, hey, where do you guys go on a buddy's trip? Nobody was saying Pinehurst, right? It was banned, and it was all these other places. Pinehurst was never in the equation. I never really even thought about it either. I mean, everybody knows it's great because, of course, too, and you see it on TV, but it was never in our vocabulary or the people that are sitting in this room. So I think when the Brain Trust decided to go that route, I think course four made the best uh, you know, option because if they wanted to go to the, the flavor or, or the look or the spirit of course two, that it needed to tie into that part of the property, right? Because when you look at it, course two and four right next to one another, now the cradle and thistle do, it's all got that exposed sand, wispy looking. So that made the most sense and it's more dramatic. And so I think that's really what led them to looking at course two and what led us to kind of following that spirit. Well, is it difficult, you know, this natural terrain like you were discussing, and obviously Piners 2 went through this a few years ago, but what was once a naturally sandy area then became very, very green, and now you have to go backwards and do more work to make it try to look, quote-unquote, natural. Was that extremely challenging, or once you kind of strip the grass out, was that easy to see the exposed sand? How does that well, work? It's, it's challenging. From a design standpoint, it's fairly easy. The challenge is from a construction standpoint. I don't want to get into a long, boring bunch of bullshit or any kind of like uh, background on soils and stuff like that, but all sands are not created equal, right? People be like, hey, it's sand, so it drains. You know, you, you, know, you, you put some sand out there, you, know, you, you take a pee and it goes away, right? <laughs> and, and that's sand, but that, that's not really true. So sands are different. The sands, that, say, out in, on the coast of Oregon or in uh, Florida or at you know, Streamsong, are much, much different sands than are here. So it's more of a silty base and, and different things of that nature. So it becomes a very hard thing to do. Now, fortunately, during this process, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And the original thought was we were going to go in and we were going to take all the old turf and we were going to grind it up and we were going to bury it in, in the out-of-play areas. And in the out-of-play areas, we we're going to take all that sand out and we we're going to use that to build everything and cap all the fairways and do that. And luckily, Bob Farron, who's you know the head of agronomy, I don't know his exact, exact title, but he pretty much heads all the all the eight golf courses. He said, "I think we should just go ahead and strip and flip all the grass." And thank God we did that because it's not really a true sand where you'd think, "Hey, let's open this up and the water's going to hit it and go away." It runs when it rains; it, it the, the sand moves and it moves quickly. So the fact that we did the strip and flip from a construction standpoint helped us out tremendously. Now, that's what allowed the golf course to get open in what we, they closed in October. And, you know, they were playing golf in September of the following year. Can you define so. strip and flip for us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on which version you want. You went, the, <laughs> you went the Urban Dictionary version or you the golf version? No, strip and flip just means that uh, basically you, you, the first two golf holes you work on, you go ahead and you take that turf and you just basically get rid of it. Then you build those first two golf holes, irrigate it. Then you go to the third golf hole and the fourth golf hole you're going to work on, cut that side and bring it over and lay it back on holes one and two that you did. And then you work your way through the golf course. That way, it's not an equal, you know, proportionally it's not equal. So at the end, you buy the last two or three holes worth of sod and you sod everything. Mm. And then everything is buttoned up and ready to go. And that's really, that was the best way to do it. Is that, you have experience doing that before? Is that something that's pretty commonly we, done we, in the industry? We've done it uh, a little bit, but not in this scale. 
but uh, it works because really it's not a huge financial savings because sod is like you can buy and lay sod for like 33, 40 cents a square foot. Uh, and to have somebody get the machines to cut it and flip it, they're going to charge you 10 or 12 cents a square foot. So you're not gaining a whole hell of a lot in the end. But in this case, it was a speed thing to get it open. And the fact that these sands would have just, it would have slid and we, we may not be playing on this golf course today, you know, because it just takes so long to grow in. I think people are, a lot of people are familiar with two, either by having played it or watched it on TV. What's, what's the difference between numbers two and number four, the similarities and the differences? Hold on a second. Before I answer that, <laughs> I got to get one of these fl flights of uh, of beer here. Eat a flight of beer. This just is so people be know. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're at the Pinehurst Brewery, which I think just opened up recently. <laughs> and if I got to you know set the stage here, it means I don't know if this stuff was still on TV when you guys were old enough to watch TV. But I feel like it's in like an episode of the um, was it the Man Show. <laughs> right? Remember that show? It's like DJ's back there in a bathing yeah, suit. Yeah, it was like yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, no, no. That's what that's what we need. We need women on the trampolines bouncing around. But what wasn't the guy on the show like a really short guy? Jimmy Kimmel. Well, no, it was uh, Seth Rogen. They had a little person, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, Chewy or something like that. His name was. We need a what chewy. did I ask? What was the <laughs> question? <laughs> but no, I, I wanted to get into the brewery thing here and see what this one is. This, is this, what, which one was this here? That's golden ale. Golden ale. Golden ale. Is any good? Yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> oh, this is good. For, for those couple people listening, when you come down to Pioneers, you definitely need to come to the brewery <laughs> and hang out and have some drinks. But uh, now the question was similarities and differences uh, between two and four. Now, it's kind of interesting, I was asked this question before, uh, is that we really didn't, at least I didn't, spend a lot of time on two when we were building four. And that's done by design. We, we didn't do it at Streamsong. We, don't, we hardly ever do it when we work side by side with another club from a new design standpoint. It's just because is that it's like trying to like write a song when you're listening to music in the background. You can't do it, right? So you don't want to go over because you don't want that to be your total influence. But we're trying to put the comparisons you know, side by side and has to have some of it. So th there is a little bit of that that you have to keep in your mind. But it was more looking at Ross outside of course number two. But looking at it now, playing it and studying it a little bit more as we go around today, you know, the differences are going to be in the greens complexes. right? Today, and, and I heard it you know, from a lot of different people after they played two, it's, it's unforgiving a lot when you hit your approach shots into the green. Right? I mean, I don't know how many times that, you know, I said, you know, one more yard, that would have been a you know, perfect spot, you know, maybe within 10 feet of the pin. And then you're rejected, you know, and you're back and now you've got uh, a six foot elevation change up onto the green, uh, which is great. I mean, it's a lot of fun, but it's very exacting. You're not going to find that so much on, on course four. You know, the greens are from an approach shot into yeah. the greens. <laughs> One day of that is enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's not going to be a lot. Of, there are elements of that. There's a lot of elements of Ross and rolling off of the sides of the greens and things like that. But I just I think that our greens on four are a little bit more receiving from that standpoint. Not that there's anything right or wrong with one or the other. They're still both very good and very strong architecturally. Uh, but similarities are going to be in you know around the greens. You're still going to have the option. Like, I didn't feel any option because, you know, my chipping is not that good. You know, I, I wasn't bringing it Shout out. Shout out, TC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, one of the guys I play with today, uh, Mark, 
uh, you know, did play a lot. He's not a afraid bit. to name yeah, names. <laughs> a, right? And he'll, uh, he'll say it too. A lot, I heard him say there's a lot of ping-ponging going on, yeah. right? Because the greens, are, they are tough when you're trying to chip and things like that. But I think the green surrounds of four are going to play the same. You're going to be able to have an option on the side of the greens. You can, I try to hit a lot of hybrids, you know, and kind of, you know, run them up on the greens. You'll be able to use your putter. You want to hit eight irons, you know, or your wedge, whatever. You're still going to be able to do that. So those similarities are there. Both golf courses, I think you have to think your way around the golf course, certainly on four and certainly today. If you're on the wrong side of the fairway or the wrong side of the, the hole or the green complex today on two, you had trouble. And you're going to have that a little bit on four as well. Uh, so you're going to have to just think about that. But, you know, if you're missing the right spot, you're much better off. It's just not as exacting as what we saw today on two. I asked Gil for uh, some questions to ask you, hoping to get some juicy stuff, and he, it, he did not come with the juicy stuff. But he wanted me to ask you about what it's like working with superintendents. What, which ones drive you nuts? Which ones do you enjoy working with? I think maybe he knows that you're going to name names, so that <laughs> might be why. But uh, what, what, what's a role in a superintendent you know, in what you do, and what are, what are some, ones, some good experiences and bad experiences? <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> Superintendents in general. Billy Horschel. Yeah, right. <laughs> Billy Horschel, Billy Horschel, Billy Horschel. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Superintendents are great. And, and like on a daily basis, you know, superintendents are basically straddling the guillotine, right? Uh, and the times have changed in the superintendent world. Before it was you're a superintendent, somebody on the committee or, or a member doesn't like what you do, they stop by the office, they stick a little post it up on your door, hey, you know, so and so is here, give me a call. You know. You call them on a Tuesday and, you know, they kind of forgot what was going on. Now, superintendents are expected to be on the phone. They're expected to be, they can be text, you know. So, you know, some guy, you know, number nine was my favorite hole today because I made it two, right? Somebody else made it ten, they hate, hate that hole. And it's always somebody else's fault like we were talking about. So superintendents are always straddling the guillotine. Uh, working with them is like, we like, we like hands-on guys. Right? We want guys that are there making decisions. We want people to be a part of that process, Okay, so like the Russ Myers of the world, who was at LA Country Club and is now at Southern Hills, Steve Rabideau, who's at you know uh, Wingfoot, and, you know, uh, and Goslin at Aronimink, and, and and Paul at Marion. I've, I've known Paul for a while. Worked for his father. Uh, these guys are great because they want to be a part of the decision-making process. And what I'm saying is no different than what any anybody here does in, in in their work world, right? You want people that are make decisions. And you live by that decision and you go with it. The worst thing you can do is not make a decision, right? So the superintendents like those guys are making a decision and are confident about the decision. Even if the decision's wrong, they're going to work to make it right in the end. But the worst guys are the ones that don't want to make a decision. And usually those guys end up losing their job because it becomes apparent. And the reason that a lot of golf courses are in the condition that they need to be renovated uh, is because that... Uh, They've been mainly the superintendent or the members, you know, quite frankly, have been too complacent and things have deteriorated over time. Every day you go into your house, you look at your house, there's nothing wrong. One day you're like, Jesus Christ, I got to paint this place. It looks like shit. Well, that just didn't happen overnight, right? That happened over a long period of time. And it's the same thing happens to clubs. They deteriorate over a long period of time. Uh, and it's up to the superintendent to keep it fresh and to make sure that doesn't happen. So the good guys are on top of it. You know, they work. The bad guys are not. They're complacent. They don't want to work hard. Not that they're, you know, anything against them, but it's just not, they're not at the right place at the right time when a club goes in and does a renovation. Yeah. We've talked a lot about domestic golf courses that you've worked on. What is it, 
you guys are you guys are busy in almost every time zone across the, across the world. What what's it like working international? How do you balance the two? And is it is it easier, harder? What's uh, what's that like? It's a lot harder. International work is very hard. When we were working at Brazil, we were working in Rio. At the same time, we were working in Dubai. Okay, you're talking about two huge economic centers of the world, right? And it was impossible to get anything. Talking equipment, you couldn't get equipment. You couldn't get competent contractors. You know what I mean? It's just it's a different way of life, and it's just the understanding of what's going on uh, makes it extremely hard. The time zone makes it hard. Part of my job is you know operations of everything, so I got to hear all the complaints from all of our guys working everywhere. There's no downtime, especially when we're working in Dubai, because Dubai's weekend you know starts on Thursday, right? Their weekend is Friday, Saturday. Uh, and then they go back from Sunday. Sunday to Thursday, they work. And when in Thailand, you know, Thailand's, you know, the time zone. So in Dubai, Sunday morning, you're waking up, it's their, their Monday morning, right? Actually, it's their Monday afternoon. And they're all over you about, you know, problems and concerns. It's not so bad now in Thailand, but it's like every day when you wake up, there is something to go and it's something going on. In Thailand, we've been there for two and a half years working. And we've got a little more than nine holes left to go. Yeah. And generally, it's not so much, it is, it's, it's the construction, I mean, we talked about not being able to equipment and the manpower, and they have no idea what a golf course is, right? They think they could be, you know, we're having them dig a bunker, they think they could be digging a basement of a house or something, you know, they got no idea what the hell it is. So that adds to it, but a lot of times it's the ownership as well. Golf is viewed differently all the way around the world, and some of those places it's much different, and, you know, their thought process and their decision making is extremely slow. And the thing that'll kill a project, and people complain about budgets and stuff like that, the thing that'll kill a project is not making a decision. You know, as soon as you delay, delay a decision, you're done. But it's no different than anything anybody else does in this room on a daily basis, just the way it is. What is the project in Thailand? I don't even know what the name of it is. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> Two and a half years in. Yeah, 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 no, it's called Ballyshear. Uh, Ballyshear, I think, was the name of uh, what's McCall's house, uh, Rainer's house. Wasn't his house? Uh, then it was the name for it. Wasn't it Ballyshear? But I think that's where the name comes from. But it's Lido inspired. What it is? It's a Japanese owner. It was Yokohama Country Club. I think he did with Bill and Ben. In just for our Tokyo. listeners, what is when you say Lido inspired? What does that mean? Well, <laughs> we, we, we could spend the, the rest of the, uh, you know, this program talking about the Lido, but Lido is basically, you know, a, a, a template hole golf course. And, you know, we could run through the template holes, you know, you know, Redan, you know, Cape Hole, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that gets into a bunch of like boring architectural stuff that, you know, nobody really needs <laughs> to uh, get into. But it's basically a, a template hole golf course is really kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese owner, and you know it's Thailand, and it's it's the site is three meters below sea level. It was an old rice paddy. Thailand, uh, I think, is a huge uh, playground, right? For a lot of reasons, you know, for the Japanese, <laughs> you know that that's their summer. Uh, I think if you're Urban Dictionary, she boys, I think you will get a pretty. <laughs> How much time do you spend on Urban Dictionary? (laughs) Actually, none. Actually, none. You know, but I think like the Urban Dictionary people. Uh, But uh, anyhow, that's that's kind of the Thailand deal that's going on. (laughs) I'm getting ready to transition to what you were most proud of, but you led in with she boys, so I don't really know where to go with that. But (laughs) if you were to think back on all the things you worked on, what what would you say is you were most proud of? Wow, that's tough. It's two, maybe two and a half. And I say half because one of these jobs is 
we're trying to get going. Okay. Most proud, I think, is Castle Stewart. Okay, for a lot of reasons, is that uh, it was nothing when we got there. It was a farm sitting on top of a cliff, and went down to a small little area before it hit the, it hit the Firth. And through you know Mark Parsons' vision, you know God bless Mark, he just passed away as well. But uh, through Mark's vision, we flipped that whole place upside down. We took all the topsoil and everything that was on top of that property and buried it all and all the gorse and everything into the dunes that you see on the property and brought up a shitload of sand and capped the whole place in sand. So basically built the entire dune system and everything that that golf sits on. It was a huge construction, you know, Marvel. And the way it turned out, I think, is, you know, it's great for golf. Uh, it's a fun place to play. I think if anybody went there, they would enjoy it. As a matter of fact, your next trip should be over there. We went last summer. Oh, did you go play? Yeah, we did. I didn't see the scorecard. It's our video. <laughs> we got a whole video on it. Randy shot like 34 or something like that. Nice. It's an awesome place, isn't it? Yeah. Could you please elaborate on whipping the chicken? <laughs> they call me the chicken man because I got real skinny legs. They say I'm riding the chicken. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that wasn't on Urban Dictionary. Urban Dictionary is something else. <laughs> whipping the chicken. But, it, it, but see, it seems like a lot of people have a ton of pride. A lot of architects have a lot of pride in not moving dirt. But you, it, one of your most proud thing here is is the dirt you did move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is because it was it was a it was a big undertaking, and it turned out great. I mean, it's it's a beautiful spot, and it just shows that yeah, not moving dirt is great, and, and we we do that, and we love doing that. And this is just one project that we did that we moved a lot of dirt that, in the long run in 20 years, or maybe even today, it doesn't look like we moved a lot of dirt. You know, it looks like it kind of belongs where it belongs. So it was a huge undertaking, and there was a, there's a lot of great people. And, and I say that, you know, golf course-wise, but it's the people you work with. It's like we've all been, since little kids, probably played on a championship team in some form or fashion, right? And you make a lot of relationships from those teams. That job, there's relationships still going on today that, you know, that we all cherish. And, and that's part of when you go work around the world and do what we do is you meet a lot of really cool, interesting people. You meet a lot of assholes. But you meet a lot of cool, interesting people. And it's those relationships that go on and on and on. And when we went to Mark's memorial service like a month ago, these people were there and it was great to see. So I think that's a huge part of it. And the golf course is a huge part of it. The other project I'm proud of is a, is a golf course that, you know, I grew up playing golf course outside of Philadelphia called Paxson Hollow. Right. It's a 50, 55, 5,700 yard golf course. It's great. It's got some of the best par threes. You know, it was a cool spot. And I went back there and did a bunch of renovation or restoration work, whatever you guys want to call it. You know, uh, and uh, that was rewarding. It's probably, you know, deteriorated a little bit over time, but, you know, that's the nature of it. But then the other one, which is the, the half portion, is Cobbs Creek. And I don't know if any people follow Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia. It's a huge golf course when it opened up, done by Hugh Wilson. The only other course, I mean, uh, Hugh did was obviously Marion. But Flynn was a big contributor to it, and, you know, Flynn did a bunch of shit at Marion, and so did Joe Valentine, and that's another whole podcast there. But uh, we're in the middle of going through a, a renovation, restoration, and just basically, it, hopefully it'll end up changing the whole neighborhood that it sits in. Uh, and we thought this course would be done in time for the open at Marion in 13. We may go to construction by 21. Jesus. <laughs> so, but it'd be, it would be a huge thing because I grew up playing golf in Philadelphia, high school golf, played there. And to bring that back, because it has probably six or seven of what would be the best creek holes. 
Take 11. Yeah, take 11 at Marion. Everybody knows 11 at Marion. And add six more holes to that that play along the creek. And if we can control the flooding, which the plan is, is in place, and we can rebuild that, it's, it, it'll, it'll be phenomenal. Awesome. Yeah. What's a, whenever you do any kind of job, you're going to have an owner or somebody involved that is going to give you an idea, I would imagine, give you an idea of what they're looking for. What would you say is the blankest slate you guys have ever had? The most, the most freedom to be artistic and kind of do something that you would love to do on your own? Barring the owner, who was a bit of a jackass, <laughs> it would probably be Rusty Canyon, right? I mean, you guys have been out to Rusty Canyon. You know, unfortunately, the two guys I played with today went out there. I mean, who plays Rusty Canyon in February, the week of the uh, Riviera? You know, it rains every year. That's the one week it rains. I think like five so, of us did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I'm just giving them a hard time. Uh, but. That was probably the, the, the best canvas for, in that sense. And we worked with Jeff Shackelford, and, and Jeff's great. And you know, he was out there because he lived there and was able to walk that ground. And it didn't look like much. I mean, other developers and architects went in and they pulled down that front entrance and they're like, I'm not building a golf here, golf course here. And they went down the Simi Valley and they built Tierra Rajada on the side of the fucking mountainside. You know what I mean? And they, you know, they're like, what, what, what were they looking at? So. That was probably the best because the ground was great. It's sandy soil. We could do whatever we wanted to do basically anywhere. And, and it turned out great. And nobody realizes how much that canyon falls and the difference in elevation. And it, you know, it's a, what, a 13, 14 story building. If you put a 14 story building on 13, you know, you wouldn't, well, actually it would be on four, but the difference in elevation from 13 to uh, four is, you know, 130 feet. You would never realize that when you stood out there, you would think it's damn near flat. But I mean, Rustic Canyon's a great place, and it's public. And it's, 50 and it's bucks. like super cheap. Yeah, it's obnoxiously yeah. cheap. I think we played at twilight rate in late January, early February, and I think it was like twenty bucks a person or something like Shit, that. Shit, you got ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the right time to, of the year to be there. So well, you guys have done a lot of really cool and interesting and new stuff, and I want to kind of touch on Ohupi and, and Stream Song Black as well. But what is, what's what's next? What do you guys? What haven't you guys done that you would love to to do? actually take a couple years off and just do nothing but play golf. <laughs> like, that would actually be really cool. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, we've been very fortunate, you know, which is great. You know, a lot of luck has been attributed to that. The timing of stuff, you know, we still do a lot of renovation and work and, you know, we enjoy that, uh, which has really, you know, really kept us busy uh, when you look at things, you know, and kind of the business of, you know, enhanced golf design and different things, which is a, another whole podcast. But, uh, I, don't know, I mean, one of the things which we're working on right now, and we're getting ready to close it up because of the winter time, is out in uh, Nebraska. Okay, it's. I was telling the guys I was playing with today that it's probably like 2002. We went out. Cleve Trimble had, you know, a couple thousand acres, an hour and a half north of Sandhills. Same chopped roll that Sandhills Golf Club is built on, just south of Valentine by like 20 minutes or something. And we looked at this property, and, and we did a whole master plan for the golf for the property. We did 36 holes. Lodge, et cetera, on Cleves property. The difference between this property and Sandhills is we have a canyon. Drops down, you know, 200 feet, if not more, in places. It kind of runs along the edge of the chop. So you've got the Sandhills and combined Sandhills with Torrey Pines or something like that. Right? You're not looking at the water or, you know, you're looking down at a, a beautiful uh, river that runs through it. Uh, so we did that. Fast forward, Cleves sold part of his ground to another developer. They built the Prairie Club 
on part of what was our original master plan, and then that owner purchased some ground adjacent, and then that's where the Prairie Club sits today. Cleve, 15 years later after he sold to Paul, finally found an owner to come in and build what we're calling the ranch. Originally it was called the old school because on the corner of his properties, an old schoolhouse, one room schoolhouse that goes back into maybe the 1800s or something. But the owner didn't want to call it old school because you go online, you search old school and it's like Will Farrell running down the road <laughs> naked, you know what I mean? So he's like, you know, we may need to come up with a different name. So uh, he's calling it the ranch. I think that may, may stick or it may not. And uh, we're finally basically back building something that we had programmed and thought would be one of our best golf courses. But really what's happened is waiting all these years, and again, we've been fortunate to keep ourselves busy, the ground that Cleve released and what we're going to build is going to be much, much better than what we thought was going to be great when we did it 20 years ago, hmm. whatever that was. So, What do you guys consider, and I have a couple that I just mentioned there, but what do you consider to be some of your more interesting works? Like, for example, Ohupi, kind of explaining the philosophy there, how that ended up happening, and how you design a golf course to be a match play golf course. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to the marketing aspect of that. But, <laughs> <laughs> You're a big marketing guy, huh? Yeah, I don't know shit about marketing. <laughs> but now, a hoopie is very interesting because just in general, the property, right? It's in just outside of Vidalia, Georgia, in Cobbtown, Georgia. Okay, if you've ever been to Cobbtown, you were probably lost, or there's something really wrong with you, right? It's kind of the middle of nowhere, Georgia. It's adjacent to Vidalia. Okay, the reason that Vidalia onions are so sweet is because they're grown on pure sand. There's something called the Ahupi River that runs from, you know, up by Augusta down towards uh, Savannah. Actually, probably goes down more towards Jacksonville than anything else. And uh, it's, there's a dune ridge called the Ahupi Dune Ridge. And that's what Vidalia sits on. That's what Cobbtown, Georgia sits on. In 2006, uh, we were contacted by Davis Love's group. Davis was looking to work with you know, somebody to, I guess, you know, do a kind of core and Crenshaw type model, you know, design firm. So we were willing to listen and see what they had to say. And Davis actually is a really nice guy. Uh, so there was this crazy guy that really, that wanted to turn what is now the 2,000 acres of the Hoopy Match Club into a road racing track community. I guess there's these bunch, I'm serious. You know, I hear Robin back there laughing. <laughs> At least it's not Fred with like, like fart sounds and stuff going on here. But it was a, a road racing track community. I guess there's a bunch of people that take their fancy cars and they like road racing and they spin around a road racing track. But the key about a road racing track, it needs to be on pure sand for drainage purposes, right? So this guy came in and he was gonna build homes around it and all that kind of stuff. So he actually laid out the track he wanted to build a golf course as an amenity and homes. Thank God the, whatchamacallit, hit the financial crisis, in this case, on this property hit, because he ended up, you know, without the finances to build it, because he was going to take the best ground. Fast forward, and there's a whole story about, you know, uh, Michael uh, getting in touch with, with us uh, about the golf course and uh, wanting to find a place to build a golf course. And he looked at a place in Long Island, didn't work out. And he mentioned to Gil, you know, I'm interested in Georgia. He's like, well, he was looking at some place maybe by Atlanta. And Gil's like, well, we got this property, which ended up being, you know, this road racing course property. Now, when we laid out the road racing course, just because it was kind of an amenity and it was all sand and it was kind of a little bit more wide open, is we had this concept, uh, I had this concept to come up with called sport golf, right? You'd have your main 18 holes, 
But we also wanted to have a set of tees that played differently. Like we were talking a lot about shorter golf courses. So we wanted the morning round to be championship golf course or afternoon, it didn't matter. But an alternative that you could play from different sets of tees, different angles, because we had the width, we had the ground, we had the sand. You weren't worried about USJ greens and all that bullshit that comes with construction costs. So that was kind of the philosophy of that golf course. That went away. So fast forward back, Michael, and we decide and we lay out what's a hoopy match club. And then uh, we brought up that concept. And Michael's like, that sounds great. So we wanted to put a couple practice holes in to make it an afternoon, you know, routing. We had some options that really didn't work, and what ended up being there today was just something that happened by us being there every day. And I was kind of shaping and working on the 12th green, and I could kind of see some excavators, and that led to what is this 18-hole plus four more greens, which comes to a 22-hole routing. You know, I've heard other guys talk about the concept, right? Uh, I actually listened to one of your podcasts on the Buck Club, and that was kind of like one of the concepts that came up there. Now, that's a great concept, right? But our course was open and built. You know? <laughs> hey, I'm just laying down the gauntlet. Uh, but no, so it is great. It's fun, but it, it's part of the concept. So anyhow, uh, that's what became the... That's going to send our club. message board into a spiral, by that's the good. way. That's good. That's good. Because when I was listening to it, I'm like, hold on, what was this? This was October of 2018. I'm like, well, we were open in 2018, <laughs> You know, which means we started construction in, like, late 16. Like, huh, interesting. <laughs> and oddly enough, Zach and Gil won, like, a tournament there. Right? Yeah. Right? You yeah. got, did you guys go to that? Yeah. No, we weren't there. Yeah, yeah, they won some tournament there. So I'm like, interesting. But anyhow, it's all, it's all in good fun. But uh, so that became, you know, the Hoopy Match Club and, you know, what's there. And, you know, it's just, it was part of it. So it was great. This is admittedly a, a bit of a half-baked question, but are there... Is let's marijuana take, illegal? Let's take, <laughs> let's take the United States to start with, and then we can expand from the world. But is there a ton of land and properties and sites out there that you know would be great for a golf course that you, you know you haven't quite figured out how to do yet? Or is, are people out there still trying to find these great sites? Uh, basically, I'm saying, are we reaching a capacity of like all the great sites are taken and no. you got to settle on the next best site? So there's no. still a ton of great sites out no. there? No, no, no. What I think is... No, seriously. What I think is, there's a couple things. Well, you know, you can get into the whole land thing. But I don't think all the great land is gone. I think all the great owners are gone. Hmm. Right? It takes very few people like a Mike Kaiser or a Michael Walrath at a Hoopie or people like that that have a vision and have the ability to say, I'm going to do something my own way, which is really going back to what golf used to be, right? And that's going to these sand places for starters or whatever it might be. But there's a lot of golf out there. There's a lot of land out there. We look at land, you know. I'm sure, you know, other guests you've had on looking at land every single day or a lot of times it is beautiful pieces of ground. They don't take those jobs because maybe the owner's not right. Yeah. So I think the ground is still there. It's not as abundant as it once was. And there's restrictions on a lot of ground. I think that we are over-regulated. I don't want to get into a political thing on, you know, we got something now called emerging wetlands. What the hell is an emerging wetland? I think I saw that on the Man Show. One yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's, like, that's like the third date thing, right? You know what I mean? It's like, hey, it's the third date. So, you know, 
<laughs> so uh, anyhow, but it's uh, you know it's part of it. So it's it, there is a, a small aspect of that, but I think a lot of the great owners are gone. And if you had all these great golf courses we're talking about today, Pine Valley, Marion, LA Country Club, you can go on and on and on. Everything was because there's a great group of people that wanted to do something really good, and they said we're going to do it no matter what, and they did it. And I think that's more than anything else. Where, if you were to if you were to point to somewhere geographically where like the most underdeveloped area, like say in the United States, is, okay. I don't know if you want to give away your sites, but uh. <laughs> no, no, it's it's you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of great golf here in the southeast, right? You know, is there room for more? Probably. I mean, Texas. You know, is is there a lot of great golf in Texas? You know, there's some good stuff in Texas, right? But is there anything great? So you got an opportunity there. You got some, we do. what's going. We what's do. the latest with the people? I'm starting to see why there's no great golf in Texas when you look <laughs> when you look at the ground. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's places. How like is that. your project going yeah. in Texas? What's it? What's it's the, going good. It's going good. It's it's the PGA of America golf course, right? They're moving their headquarters from Palm Beach Gardens or a portion of their headquarters from Palm Beach Gardens to Frisco, Texas. Uh, that's where their headquarters will be. There's going to be a uh, big hotel complex that Omni Hotel is going to uh, build and manage, and then 36 holes. We're doing 18 holes uh, on the championship course. Bo Welling and his guys, who are great, by the way. I mean, Bo and his team and Scott Benson and Shane, these guys are awesome. Uh, they're doing the second golf course. We're moving dirt right now, but I'm excited to go work there just because of the camaraderie that's been built. It's a tough piece of ground. There's a lot of earth moving. It's, you know, it's going to be interesting to be able to create something, but uh, we'll, we'll try our best. You know? All right, we're going to wrap the with one final question. All the golf courses you've seen and places you've worked, if you could go, you could be transported anywhere you want tomorrow for a round of golf. You get to choose anywhere in the world. Where are you playing? Royal Melbourne. That was a quick answer. You've been and enjoyed, I've or been have and never I been? I enjoyed it. I thought it's great. You know, plus it's been in the news every day, right? You know, because of the uh, President's Cup. Sure. But no, I, I think you know Royal Melbourne. I think would be an awesome spot to go. What, um, what particularly about Melbourne inspires I, I just, you? I just like the creativity of the place. You know? I, I, think, I think it's, it's an awesome golf course. There were two golf courses. I mean, it's just it's, it's everything that we aspire for, right? It's, it's fun. It's in- interesting. It's got you know, short holes. You've got to put yourself in the right spot. You've got to hit good shots. You've got to think your way around the golf course. I know when we were out there visiting and stuff, there was, it, was a, it was a World Cup-type golf event going on, and it's like it was four – players from every country that were there, and they were mainly amateurs, or they were all amateurs, but watching them play these golf holes, and we're with Mike Clayton, and everybody knows Clayton, you know, the guy, he's nuts, right? But watching him, you know, like, and watching these guys play these golf holes and, like, hit shots, and you're like, there's no way they're going to get it close because they're bombing a ball as far as they can to leave themselves a 40-yard pitch, and then the ball rolls off the back. You know, it's not. So just being in a proper location, so that would definitely be it. But I believe me, I got a long list of, you know, places I like to go. Mainly because I wouldn't actually have to fly there. You know? <laughs> You're like, boom, I'm there. Awesome. Well, we uh, we got to get to the cradle. We're going to take some of these beers with us, I think. But thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for thank you guys. Thank you, uh, thank you, to Pinehurst as well, and for all the work you've done here. And uh, we'll have to do this it. again sometime. I, think, I feel like we left some stories on the table. No, there. that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> definitely want to thank the Pinehurst folks, right? Yeah. You know, like. Uh, Matt and his staff at the pro shop, you know, Bob Farron, Bob Dedman, Tom Pashley, and those guys are all great. Everything about Pinehurst is great. And again, for those three or four people that are listening that aren't here, come on down, you know, come on down. It's a great spot. That's the last roasting we're going to take. Mr. Jim Wagner, thank you very much. Cheers.
club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.